quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. A manhunt is underway for the suspect in that mass shooting in Texas, including a nine-year-old boy. The victims had allegedly asked the suspect to stop shooting his rifle next to their house. The noise was keeping their baby awake. But instead of simply arguing with them, he shot and killed five of his neighbors. There's also the 79-year-old Illinois man who fatally shot his neighbor for using a leaf blower in his own driveway and the 29-year-old in Texas who shot and killed a guy for posing as a valet parking attendant. What used to be screaming matches or fistfights have become fatal shootings. Tonight, our panel offers their explanations for why. Plus, the suicide of a 17-year-old student at an elite boarding school is forcing the school to admit the horrible mistakes they made when it came to bullying and how they fell, quote, tragically short in protecting this promising young man. What this case tells us about today's version of bullying. And how many of you out there are members of the KISS Army, like me, and know that Paul Stanley was made for loving you? Yes, he was. Well, now kisses Paul Stanley, someone who knows a lot about wearing makeup, Bedazzled vests and thigh-high boots is sharing his thoughts about gender identities, and he seems upset. We have a lot to discuss. Okay, but we start with the very serious topic of the manhunt for the suspect in the Texas massacre of five people, including a nine-year-old child. He is considered armed and dangerous. More than 250 law enforcement officers are on the hunt for him tonight. And can you tell us what led up to that shooting, why they called about a harassment? My understanding is is that the the victims uh, they came over to the fence said hey could do you mind not shooting uh, out in, in the yard we have a young baby that, that's um, trying to go to sleep and uh, he had been drinking and he says I'll do what I want to in my front yard. A source from Immigration and Customs Enforcement says Francisco Orapesa entered the U.S. illegally. Here is his wanted photo right now. Please take a close look at it. He was apparently deported at least four times prior to this shooting. Let's bring in our panel. We have Republican pollster Lee Carter, former Congressman Mondaire Jones, CNN's own John Avalon, insider columnist Lynette Lopez, and joining us is Scott Jennings, who worked in the George W. Bush White House. Every aspect of this story, Lee, is awful. It's awful. I mean, everything he, you know, kills five members of his neighbors, a family, including a nine-year-old boy. And he was deported four times. He was convicted in Texas in 2012 of drunk driving. Um, He's escaped probably back to Mexico. 
Um, but it's just awful on every level. Your thoughts? It's awful on every level. And I think this becomes sort of a case study on all of the different issues that Americans are concerned about right now, from gun control to immigration across the board. Gun control is one of the things that Joe Biden is performing the least least well on. Only 35 percent of Americans right now are satisfied with, with the gun control laws. It's something we all agree on. In fact, 63 percent favor stronger gun laws. But how that's is it his problem? problem? That's Congress's issue. It is Congress's issue, but they're blaming it on him. They're saying that he had... He had control of the executive branch and he had Congress for two years and something could have happened before now. Well, something did happen. I was, yeah. there, I was there when it did. It was the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, uh, which was the most robust set of gun reforms that we've seen in at least a generation in this country. And still, to the point that Lee just made, it didn't go far enough, right? You've got Republicans who won't uh, provide a filibuster-proof majority in the United States Senate, for example, to pass an assault weapons ban, which uh, over 60% of Americans support, or pass universal background checks, which, depending on the polling, anywhere from 80 to 90% of Americans support. Uh, so these and other things are common-sense gun reforms that we have yet to see progress on. But let's be clear, that is because of Republican obstruction. I think most Americans, including many Republicans, know that. Mondaire, what about the border aspect of this? What about the fact that he, that this guy has supposedly been deported four other times? He was convicted of drunk driving. What about that? The fact, I mean, does, if, if, does anything else scream porous border more than that? I mean, look, it, it is a, a terrible issue, I think, in this moment. Uh, for not just for the country, obviously, there, there, there's a human aspect to this story. The people who died, um, you know, our hearts should all go up, could be going out to them. It speaks to the need for comprehensive immigration reform. And yes, to get tougher on people who have been committing crimes, who have crossed the border. I don't know who is responsible for this guy crossing on four different occasions, apparently, but all, anyone who is responsible for that should be fired, I think. Scott, uh, just one second. Scott, go ahead. Hold on. Hold on. I'm sorry. You are a former United States congressman and you're not familiar with who is responsible for enforcing the borders of the United States of America. This is a story about illegal immigration. This man broke our laws repeatedly over a long period of time. He broke the immigration laws. Then he broke laws while he was here. And nobody sees. Oh, I don't know who's responsible for this. But Let Scott, me what do you, you think is the, the federal government but yeah, is but- a complete failure? Enforce the laws. This is an illegal immigration story, and no one wants to say it. Scott, they did. They convicted him and sent him out of the country. That is enforcing the laws. And and where did he shoot? And where did he shoot these people? Back in the United States. Are you telling me this is working? This is a total failure of failure. I agree, Scott. Everybody agrees. We all have agreed this is a total failure. But I'm not sure how the our border is supposed to be patrolled at every square inch to keep somebody who desperately wants to keep coming in, who is a, obviously a criminal, from coming in. John. Look, it, it, this example uh, is evidence of the accusations of folks who say there's a resolving do- revolving door. Um, we clearly need to do a better job with enforcement, particularly when it comes uh, to people who've committed any kind of a crime. Um, and and Mondaire's right about the fact that ultimately you need a comprehensive immigration reform in this country. Um, that, that is an essential part of this. But this is not just an immigration story. This is a gun violence story. This is part of a larger series of gun mass shootings we've seen when people are asked in a reasonable way by neighbors to be neighborly and they respond with, with mass shooting. And I do want to get to that. Yeah, it was an important part of the story. We will in a moment, but first I want to hear you. Where did this criminal get a gun? 
Do we let just criminals buy guns in this country whenever they want to after they've crossed the border multiple times, breaking the law, after they've been arrested for drunk driving in this country? We just let them buy guns. Is that that seems like a problem. That seems like even worse of a problem than letting someone over the border, because then at least at that point you can arrest them and multiple people aren't dead. It seems like more of a problem that a criminal can get a gun, no questions asked, and then turn to his neighbors and shoot, 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 as if that is what he believes he's entitled to do in this country. Wild, wild. But but, uh, Congressman, I fail to see how how would... Um, comprehensive immigration reform have stopped this from happening? Look, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. First of all, I think you'd have uh, the proper deployment of resources at this point that would allow people to more effectively police those who are crossing illegally instead of trying to account for Yes, many, many thousands of people who are doing so and trying to figure out where to prioritize your resources. When you have fewer people crossing the border illegally because you have comprehensive because you have a comprehensive immigration strategy in place, then you can focus on individuals like this and, and actually de- deporting permanently criminals who have crossed the border. Lee, let's talk about the gun aspect of this, because it's not just this. In the past two weeks, there have been all of these examples of what used to, what would have been resolved, or maybe not resolved, but at least fought out with a shouting match Mm -hmm. or fist fight. Now, somebody is shot for. You pull into the wrong driveway. You open the wrong car door in a mall parking lot. And you're shot. We have more examples. A 79-year-old man in Illinois shoots a neighbor over a leaf blower. Is How do you explain this? And do you think it is people with a hair-trigger temper having easy access to guns? Well, I think that um, more than half of Republicans right now think there needs to be stronger gun laws. So let's just be, this is an issue that we should be able to get something done on. And I can see you're getting ready to say something. But it it needs to be addressed. The other problem right now is there's a very different view of the world between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans right now are much more likely to think that crime is on the rise. In fact, since the la- over the last three years, Republicans now say it's 73% worse than it was before. Well, d- Democrats say it's only 5% worse. We're living in two different worlds. I think Republicans in many ways are more afraid than they've ever been. And so they want their guns. They want to be able to protect themselves. And that's how they feel. Now, we have to figure out a way to address it because obviously it's on the rise and all of this is unacceptable. Nobody's going to say that it's okay what's going but, on here. But, but Lee, what, what you're saying here is that, that 63% of Republicans want there to be tougher gun laws. Um, and yet we know, I mean, there was bipartisan legislation and people can agree on things like mental illness and red flag laws are great. But obviously, guns are an issue uh, that ha- supermajority support for reasonable reforms have gotten blocked every step of the way since Sandy Hook. So if you say it's great, 63 percent of Republicans say they want tougher gun laws. But, you know, there's zero percent chance that Republicans are going to support that in the Senate and Congress. And, and look, I understand it. Concerns about crime. I think that's legitimate. That shouldn't be a politicized issue. Um, but but let's be real about, you know, if, if you say 63 percent of Demo- Republicans support that, then we should say, great, we will have bipartisan support for reasonable gun reforms starting tomorrow. And yet we all know there is a snowball's chance of hell of that happening. So can I, can I just make a point on the on the crime thing? I mean, just because two people, two different groups of folks are, are, are living in a different world doesn't mean it's not incumbent among people to tell the truth to them so that we can we can reach mm-hmm. a consensus on what is reality. It is absolutely the case that in several cities in this country that crime has 
risen over the past several years. Now, in New York City, for example, it happens to be less this year than it was the year before. But when you look at the past 30 years, for example, crime is significantly lower overall than it was in the 90s, in the early 90s, yep. for example, or late 80s. And I think that's important, too. When I hear things that Republicans have are more afraid than ever before, that, that worries me because it means someone's lying. To them. It's intentional. It's definitely intentional. And the gun problem that we have is intentional because fear sells guns and people wanted to sell guns. We're not in this problem by accident. Um, Scott, go ahead. Yeah, look, I, I mean, you know who commits violent crimes? People who commit violent crimes. I think one of the biggest problems we have in this country is not keeping violent people in jail for mm-hmm. a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And, and you know, and just, just the other day in Washington, D.C., the chief of police was talking about, you know, when they arrest murder suspects, those people on average have been arrested, you know, eight, nine, ten times. Violent people commit other violent actions. And until as a society, we're willing to put them in jail and keep them there. I think we're going to continue to have violent crime spikes. Except some of these are one offs. Some of these, for instance, the case with Ralph Yorl, who was shot by the, you know, um, older gentleman through the door of his front door because Ralph Yorl rang the doorbell. That guy hadn't committed a gun violence before. He was scared. And shot someone because he rang the so, doorbell. So I think we gotta we gotta we gotta bifurcate the conversation a little bit. There's a rising incident of people who normally would have settled a, a disagreement because they were angry or unhinged at that moment. That would have been a, a screaming match that is turning into gun violence. That's about massive access, unprecedented access to firearms in an environment of fear. Scott's right, though. The vast majority of violent crime is created by a relatively small number of people. We could have a different conversation about bail reform and all all those associated issues. Mondaire's right that crime's lower than it was in the early 90s, but it's higher than it was a decade ago and where it was for a sustained period of time. And so that's what's leading to those perceptions. And and also, should we be making it easy for violent criminals, people we've already described as violent, to get access to weapons of war and and just firearms generally. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems dumb, and I don't know why that's not part of the analysis that I just heard. Okay, friends, thank you very much. Obviously, we're not going to solve this tonight, but I appreciate all of your informed perspectives. Next, what does it mean to be bullied these days? If you think it's about, you know, what we imagine as getting slammed into the locker, shoved on the playground, it's not anymore, of course. A 17-year-old died by suicide after his school says he was the victim of bullying. This was cruel behavior on a much larger scale, huge public humiliation. What can we do now to protect our kids? One year after the suicide of a 17-year-old student in New Jersey, his school is admitting the many mistakes they made. They say they, quote, fell tragically short of protecting his safety. Jack Reed died on April 30th, 2022 at Lawrenceville, the prestigious boarding school. The school admits that for a year before his suicide, Reed had been a target of bullying and other forms of harassment based on false rumors. The school took the time to investigate the rumors. They found them to be false, but never announced their findings publicly. I'm back now with our panel. We're also joined by Dr. Ken Druck, an expert on resilience and the author of The Real Rules of Life. Um, Lynette, this is incredible on many levels because this school, Lawrenceville, has come forward to admit their mistakes. Often schools don't do that. And so this one, it sounds like it was part of a settlement reached with their parents. Don't know if they would have done this on their own, but nevertheless, 
They are now saying the many ways in which they failed this student. Here's just part of their student, uh, their statement. Lawrenceville's top priority is the physical, social, and emotional health, safety, and well-being of our students. We recognize that in Jack's case, we fell tragically short of these expectations. They didn't release the findings that it was a false rumor that, it, that was circulating to the student body. I mean, that's, that's just, it's unthinkable. It's disgusting in part because we know that the internet is a real place and that it's a place full of passwords and secret places that kids know about that adults don't know about. And so kids can go to that place and be bullied without any adult knowing what's going on. The fact that they even investigated is, is I guess, good. But the fact that this kid was at boarding school, you know, there's no parent to protect you there. Your, your parents aren't there to look through your backpack and check your homework and all that stuff. And yeah, you rely the, on the school. You rely on the that. school. This kid was alone. And, and mm-hmm. on the Internet, he was alone and cornered by his classmates. It's really, really upsetting. You know, Dr. Druck, we were talking in our show meeting about how back in the day, you know, when we were in school, you could be bullied at school, but then you went home and that was your safe haven. And now because of right. the Internet, there is no safe haven. You're not safe in your room, no, your is. dorm room, or at home. So how do you define no. bullying now? You know, you know, the first first order of business is to tell Bill and Elizabeth Reed uh, that my heart goes out to them and that I love what they're doing to honor their son by stepping forward and calling attention with CNN's help here and our panel's help to what we can do and what we need to understand about what kids are going through. And what bullying is today, because it has changed, as you're saying, Allison, with the Internet, you know, a, a minute ago, we were talking about guns, how guns amplify emotions, you know, an emotion that normally would have been somebody getting very angry, cussing at somebody else, you know, trying to assassinate their character with a gun in your hand. That's amplified a thousand times with the Internet as a resource for spreading misinformation for conspiracy, for false accusation, a child can be devastated and children are being devastated. And we need to know and think about what do we do about that besides opening those lines of communication to our kids when they're in a state of despair and giving them at least one safe place to say, I'm in pain. Yeah. Um, John, I was reading that uh, one of the kind of... uh, enhancers of suicidal ideation is public humiliation. Mm. Public humiliation can tip somebody into, you know, somebody who's depressed, somebody who's struggling into it. Well, the internet is one big public humiliation cesspool if you're on the receiving end of bullying like this. Yeah, and especially if you haven't developed um, a thick skin born of experience. Uh, Everything about this story is is heartbreaking. Um, But what I I think is, and and I think the school does, whatever the circumstances were, coming forward, admitting failings and saying you're going to implement lessons learned, cold comfort for the parents, but, but, but a step forward for the community. I think what's so heartbreaking here is that you've got a kid who on the surface may have seemed like he had it all going for him. He did. Athlete, great student, a leader among other students. Elected, you know, president of his dormitory, but was falsely accused of sexual assault. That rumor percolated online and 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 that undercut his confidence, apparently consistently. That kind of cruelty, a form of bullying that we don't might not look like bullying does traditionally. But the failure of the school to call out the investigation to clear his name um, 
That, that's where part of this tragedy occurs. And it just reminds people, don't, ju- don't judge people by, by what they seem to be. You know, that line about treat everyone with kindness because everyone is carrying an enormous burden. And then that final reminder, which is you know, the, 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 the ultimate tragedy of permanent solutions to temporary problems. Um, Dr. Druck, so many schools say they have anti-bullying programs. What is that? What is an anti-bullying program? What does that look like? Or what are the best ones or effective ones look like? You know, it's it's teaching kids about this thing called status insecurity. How do how do kids how is how important is status in a child's life in a teen? It's everything. How they appear, whether they fit in, they're in that bridge time of life between childhood and experimenting, taking that test drive into adult life. And status is everything. But when they look around, what do they see? How, how long do they have to turn on the television to see somebody assassinating somebody else's character, yeah. somebody creating stories about? So, so what's sanctioned in the adult world now filters down. And what does a school do? A school will try to teach kids kindness, but we're teaching kids in in preschool. You know, here's the difference between kindness and mean-spiritedness. And yet those things are so pervasive and are so sanctioned that we're fighting a huge battle. Yeah. Lee, thoughts? I mean, this is just something that is so tragic that when you look at the numbers, more than half of high school-age students have said that they've experienced cyberbullying themselves. A third of them they say they have experienced at least five incidents or more. This is a crisis. There's a mental health crisis on top of all of this, and it's, it's amplified by social media. The fact that people are putting information out there that we don't understand about our kids is absolutely unacceptable. The idea, mm-hmm. when you read the story about this child, he went home at Christmas time and he said to his father, is it ever going to stop? Is it ever going to stop, Dad? Are they ever going to believe that he didn't do it? And they knew that he didn't, and they didn't clear his name. But this is happening all over the place. This is one story that's getting a lot of attention, thankfully because of this child's parents, who are really doing a lot of work to make sure that we're all aware. But more needs to be done. There's, there, there's no excuse yeah. for us to allow this to happen to our kids. We only have a few seconds left. Andre, your thoughts? Yeah, look, it looks like the school was more interested in protecting itself mm-hmm. from the possibility that it may have a rapist as a student than it was about protecting the student once it became clear per its own investigation that those allegations were false. And it's just horrifying. I mean, my my heart broke reading the story. I I cannot imagine what it feels like to be the parents in this situation. And I'm also so glad that when I was in high school, we didn't have so many of these social media applications to help further disseminate these lies. I mean, kids are going Mm -hmm. through a lot right now in the high school and elementary school context. And I just think stuff like that just makes it easier for people to get bullied. So true. Teenage, being a teenager is hard enough. Uh, thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Druck. Really appreciate your expertise. And if you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts or feelings of hopelessness, please call the number on your screen, 988. That's all you have to call. The Lifeline provides 24-hour free and confidential support. You can also text chat at 988-lifeline.org. Okay, everybody stick around because the man known as the godfather of AI is now warning us about the dangers of his creation. That's next. The godfather of artificial intelligence is trying to sound the alarm about his invention. In fact, he's leaving his job at Google after more than a decade so he can speak out about the dangers of this technology. 
His name is Jeffrey Hinton, and he was instrumental in inventing neural networks. That's the technology that serves as the foundation for AI platforms that we know today, like ChatGPT or Google's Bard. His concerns about artificial intelligence break down into three big categories. First, misinformation. Second, upending the job market. And third, a legitimate threat to humanity. That sounds important. Let's get to my panel. John, um, basically, he's saying that he he created a Frankenstein monster that we don't yes. know that we don't know what it's capable of doing, and he, along with many other tech leaders, are begging us to pump the brakes, and we're not doing it. We're not following it. Well, as as usual, government is a slow reactor because technology moves so fast and legislation moves so slow. But when an industry is begging, let alone the guy who started a lot of this stuff with his research, this is the scene in the movie where the guy who creates the monster says, we got a problem, people. That's right. And to some extent, look, AI is all we should be talking about. When you look back in the rearview mirror of history, that's going to be the thing that happened in the first and second quarter of this year as AI started taking off in a massive way. And when the people are saying, please regulate us, don't trust a bunch of senators or congressmen necessarily, but what they're saying is create a new FDA. Create an issue panel of experts that's empowered by the federal government to pump the brakes because this thing has destabilizing impacts and revolutionary impacts, both good and bad, that we can barely imagine now. Lynette. Well, destabilizing impacts, sure, but it's not like Silicon Valley is doing anything about it. No. You know? they're, they're rushing forward because they quarterly have earnings. the quarterly earnings. Please. And, you know, they just had a really tough year last uh-huh. year. A lot of companies got their butts kicked. So now it's time for Silicon Valley to say, OK, we've got this new trick. So everybody go ride this. But this if, if you had if you had reasonable regulation, that would level the playing field. Instead, they're going to say, as long as the Wild West, we're going to grab all we can, no matter what the repercussions. But who's we? They're we. Well, except they're not they're, we. Except there weren't there these, we. yeah, weren't there these this 1, part 000, all, This is very confusing. But weren't there these, who's on first? Weren't there <laughs> these 1,000 tech leaders who begged the, you know, the yes. creators yes. of these AI are the same to pump people, the brakes? These are the same people who have fired their entire ethical AI yeah. teams. These mm-hmm. are the yeah. same people who don't want to put up the money so that they can see what the AI is doing in the background. All of this stuff costs money. Silicon Valley would rather spend that money marketing this tool, getting to the to point fun or wherever they can unleash it to us as fast as possible to make as much money as possible. So Unless do they want to do it the safely? So no. what he said was everything was going along fine until Bing released their chat. And that ended up accelerating everything and everything got more careless. And that's frightening. And when you look at the polling on this, not to go back to the numbers all the time, but that's what I have to do, the more people know about AI, the more likely they are to say that it should be regulated. 70% of Americans who don't know a lot about it say it should be regulated. 80% who are very familiar with it say it should be regulated. That's a big difference. The problem is 60% of Americans don't have faith that the government knows enough to do something about it. Right, and so, I understand that because let us we've talked about this before. Some people in government are older than people who understand. <laughs> Is that a problem in yes, government? I've some heard that. People yeah. are Famous, older. Famously, yes. Congressmen. Look. And they, they don't know how to regulate this, let's be honest. Well, you know, I, as I watch the Supreme Court take on a case today uh, that could gut the administrative state, I'm not clear that even creating something equivalent to the FDA for AI is going to solve the problem. Congress hmm. needs to do it itself. Um, and we need better people in Congress, people who are more up to speed on these issues, who are more intelligent, who are staffed by really intelligent people to resolve this TikTok, stuff. AI's taking over. Well, we got we to gotta start somewhere. And as someone whose favorite movie is T2 Judgment Day, I am concerned about but, these machines becoming self-aware and taking over. And I, you know, I, I laugh, but I'm also quite serious about it because I don't think that we yet know the implications of we these don't. machines. 
The yeah. people who are making them don't know the implications. No, this, of this, this, the Godfather doesn't know. He's trying to warn us. He's trying to sound the alarm. But I hear what you're saying. We need better people in Congress. That's uh, okay. At best two years away. What can happen today to pump the brakes here? Uh, <laughs> in prevailing upon private industry to, oh. to, to self-regulate. I mean, you asked the question. I don't like the answer, but it's but, the most but, realistic. Silicon answer. Valley known for its care about well, social yeah. impact. They're, they're telling us they can't. Right. Part, partly because everyone's afraid they they're going to lose first and second. Well, that's the thing. They can. They can. But they don't want to. I mean, it, it's a collective action problem. Right. That's right. And that's it's also exactly. a global problem because it's not just if we can't take yep. care of it here. We can't just say we're going to stop here and do nothing because what's going to happen in China? What's going to happen in Russia when other people have advances in technology, too? Mm. Who do we trust more? The, well, I mean, do we trust the Chinese and the Russians with technology? No. no. And, all, and also there are implications with the power of their computer systems and mm-hmm. what we are already cutting off to our enemies that we don't like anyway. But the point is, Silicon Valley is driving this bus. They're the ones who should pump the brakes. And they shouldn't look at us, be like, and break everything like they did with social media and then turn around and be like, well, oh, no, it's broken. There's an Again? example where there can be bipartisan support for this if there is collective will. But look, you know, going back to Ted Stevens talking about a series of tubes, it would be better to actually put together an FDA-style panel. But you raise a profound point about some of the, the implications for that. Okay. Thank you all. I'm not sure I feel better. Uh, thank you very <laughs> sure. much. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, we got no <laughs> Thank you very much. Be sure to tune in at the top of the hour. Some of our favorite reporters will join me to talk about the scoops that they are covering, including how a Hollywood writer's strike could affect all of our TV viewing. Okay, next, legendary kiss rocker and makeup wearer Paul Stanley is offering up his thoughts on trans kids. We'll be right back. Yes, that's Kiss, performing Strutter, part of the soundtrack of my adolescence. But now guitarist and singer Paul Stanley is jumping into the culture wars about kids and gender identity. He posted a message on social media titled, My Thoughts on What I'm Seeing. He says, quote, there's a big difference between teaching acceptance and normalizing and even encouraging participation in a lifestyle that confuses young children into questioning their sexual identification as though some sort of of game as though it's some sort of game and then parents allow parents in some cases allow it there are individuals who as adults may decide reassignment is their needed choice but turning this into a game or parents normalizing it as some sort of natural alternative or believing that because a little boy likes to play dress up in his sister's clothes or a girl in her brothers we should lead them steps further down a path that's far from the innocence of what they're doing all right, there's a lot to talk about there. My panel is back. <laughs> Finally, John, my area of expertise comes into play on the show. And I don't mean I, transgender. I mean kiss. Yeah, no, clearly. And, yeah. and, and, and I'm, I'm glad you're feeling this kind of vindication, bringing you back to those years on the shore. <laughs> I always like to think you was more of a punk rock girl. I am, but kiss started it. Kiss was the gateway drug. That was the gateway that drug? That was the gateway drug that started all of it. And here's what I'd like Funny to say about you about kiss. It's a gateway drug. It yeah. is a gateway drug. And my point is that 
Paul Stanley knows a thing or two about trying on different identities for size, for sure. Yeah. Okay. And heels. He does. I mean, platform be- heels and, and, you know, bedazzled shirts. He Call played. Him out. He, Call he, him no, out. I mean, he, no, look, they were aggressively heterosexual. Okay. Kiss was aggressively heterosexual. However, they were trying on different personas for size. So, in some ways, I take his point of what he's saying that if somebody's trying on things for size, Let's not jump to the most extreme. Fair point. But I also don't think, I think he's worried about something that isn't happening. I don't know any parents who are rushing their kids to gender reassignment surgery. I think he can exhale. I don't don't (laughs) think parents are rushing their kids to do something. What is he going to do now that Tucker Carlson doesn't have a show? It makes me. There is evidence in certain states, in certain places, that more kids are, are going in different directions than in other places. It's becoming sort of socially acceptable in groups. And so like where? Like in the, California, there's okay. there's a there's a larger there's a larger number. And I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that we shouldn't embrace, love, and accept people. I think it's important at the bottom line that that is the most important thing. We want people to feel loved and accepted for who they are. On the other hand, when you're thinking about children who are under the age of 18, they're not allowed to get a tattoo, you're not allowed to vote, you can't get a beer, but you can get a gender reassignment, and that's concerning. The, I can see why it should be a last but resort. But the difference is, like, those things are cosmetic, right? And, and, and what we're talking about, gender reassignment, surgery, hormone treatment, this is all pursuant to medical advice and consultation and deep thinking by the parent. Uh, You know, there's a ton of research behind this. This isn't something that people do lightly. People are not waking up one day and saying, I'm going to let my kid get gender reassignments. This is deliberative and it is scientifically informed and medically informed. And it's already a tremendously emotional decision. And so to have someone like this guy say, based on what I've been seeing, what what do you mean? Where have you been seeing? Have you been participating in the conversations that I just described? No, like you're reading some blog that's not fact-checked and you're coming to conclusions and you're using your platform to make, frankly, the environment more dangerous for these kids. He's engaging in, he's engaging in the large-scale national bullying campaign against transgender people that a lot of people in this country are engaging but in But is right he trying now. to bully he? them? But hold on, hold on. Because is he trying to bully them or does he just truly, as you say, he's not interacting with them, he doesn't know, so he's scared of what he's seeing. I mean, I think a lot of this is fear-based. Yeah. He's scared of what he's seeing on, say, Tucker's old show. And he is worried that this is happening. When, in fact, if you look at the numbers, it is such a fraction. Tiny, tiny. A tiny, tiny fraction of adolescents or teenagers. Tiny. And by the way, again, if they get to the point of reassignment, they have gone through so much with their parents (sighs) by that point. I know from having friends who've gone through this, this is not a snap decision. Which is why it feels like famous people and people yelling at them in the Internet just feels like bullying. It's this, they're just vulnerable, small number of people. And again, conflating sexuality with gender norms. Like, KISS was aggressively heterosexual, but they were playing with their sexuality. If anyone should understand that distinction, perhaps. Yeah, they should should understand that. And a a little boy dressing up as a girl, he he might be a a straight little boy or a gay little boy, unclear. But masculinity isn't about how you dress or... Any of those things. I mean, it, it's confusing that I have to explain this to Kiss. It's so- <laughs> <laughs> look, look, this has clearly been a magnet for panic. It's been politicized to demonize a group of people who are very small and without much political power in a lot of places. That said, I think we can also have a conversation about, you know, the fact that this is still 
medically a new frontier, so to speak. The Economist had a great cover story I recommend called America's Misguided Gender Medicine that just questioned some of the trends and saying maybe we should pump the brakes when it comes to irreversible treatments. Though that conversation can be had without accusing someone of being a transphobe. Um, what I think is, is even more inexcusable is the way this issue has clearly been politicized and used to demonize a community um, uh, that, that doesn't have a lot of political power and, and we all need to support the principles of, of self-determination by adults and compassion for our fellow Now, I don't I think just... Paul Stanley is demonizing the trans kids. I really don't. I don't think he's demonizing them. I think he's, I think he's scared by whatever he's seen, as you say, and he's saying, I hope that parents aren't rushing to do this, and again, but, they're, they're not. But he I is, he, you, I will Paul. say, he is diminishing their experience. You know, there is something called gender dysphoria, among other things, that people are actually experiencing, and I would just ask people who feel the need to weigh in on this subject that does not concern them, that Ooh. they, in the same way that they wouldn't substitute their own judgment for an oncologist treating cancer or a psychiatrist cheating, any, any other, you know, human experience that we not, as, whether it's writers at The Economist or on the Wall Street Journal or Fox or anywhere else, substitute their own un- un- scientifically uninformed and medically uninformed judgment for the actual experts who advise them I think you want to be, you, I, I wouldn't lump The Economist in with, with, you know, partisan outlets like this. I think it is, if, re- read the piece, and it is very much just about these diagnoses are increasing dramatically. Um, we don't have all the facts. Europe, Europe is coming to a different conclusion in some cases than America. And so you want to take that all into account when it comes to irreversible procedures on, on, on minors. That, that's all. And, and we should be able to have that conversation. And we just did. Thank you very much, friends. Really <laughs> appreciate that. All right. We've got some news on some extreme weather tonight. Dozens of cars have crashed on a major highway. Multiple people dead because of this dust storm. So we're going to go to the CNN Weather Center for an explanation about how this happened right after this. A tragic scene in central Illinois, a dust storm led to a series of pileups on Interstate 55, as you can see, involving dozens of passenger and commercial vehicles. Two semi-trucks caught fire. Police report at least six people were killed and more than 30 injured. They say the dust storm was caused by excessive winds blowing dirt from newly plowed fields near the highway, which led to zero visibility for drivers. So let's bring in CNN's meteorologist, Chad Myers. So Chad, what? Just describe how exactly this happened. This is what happens in the spring when a farmer takes his disc and he runs over the field, turning over the land that was fallow all winter. Now all of a sudden you have the dry dirt from below, now up on top, all crumbled up. And so the wind that we had around this low pressure right over the Great Lakes was up to 45 miles per hour today. And there's rain here. But there isn't rain where the crashes were occurring, where the dust storm was occurring. Now the winds are down to about 20, this green area about 20 miles per hour. But tomorrow afternoon, the same thing could occur again. Winds are going to be 45 miles per hour one more time. So let's get to this. This is very much the heart of corn country. Here's Chicago. Here's all the way through Illinois. Here's Springfield. I-55 coming down south of Springfield. And this is where it occurred. What do we see here? Concrete? No. We see dirt. We see farmland. We see fields. We see farmers doing farming things, especially now the beginning of May, tilling that soil, tilling that dirt over, making it crumbly. All of a sudden, you have so much exposed dirt and so much exposed dust. The wind came across those farm fields and right here onto I-55, where all of that occurred earlier today. The winds were coming across the fields, picking up the dirt, picking up the sand, the dust, 
the soil from what the farmers need to do every spring. It just, two things went together at the wrong time, Allison. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, Chad, thank you very much for the update there. Uh, More sad news tonight. Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot has died at 84 years old. A spokesperson says Lightfoot died of natural causes at a hospital in Toronto. Just last month, he canceled his 2023 U.S. and Canada concerts due to health-related issues. And you can hear what's probably his best-loved song, If You Could Read My Mind. Or a fortress strong with chains upon my feet. You know that ghost is me. And I will never be set free as long as I'm a ghost. You can't see. And coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow. They're going to share their scoops with us next. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. With me, Lauren Fox, Danny Freeman, Omar Jimenez, and fresh from red carpet duty at the White House Correspondents' (laughs) Dinner, he's still drunk with power, Harry Enten. All right, Harry, I can't wait to see some Mm. videos of that, but we'll save that for a moment. Okay, Lauren, let's start with you. So uh, the country could be out of money. One month from now, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent this letter to Congress today saying that the U.S. will default on its debt on June 1st. That's the estimate, I guess. June 1st, exactly one month from now. So you're here to fill us in on all of the details. Now what? (laughs) Well, that is the big question right now. And this was a big surprise coming from Yellen today, saying that this was going to happen as soon as June 1st. That's because the estimates had been basically a wide window of the entire summer where the default could potentially be happening. Now we know that Congress has a deadline, essentially a month to figure this out, which is why you were starting to see some action that you did not see for the last 90 days. That is about how long it's been since McCarthy and the president sat down in a room to talk about this issue. Now we expect that they are going to meet on Tuesday next week to make a decision about okay. how to go forward. Hold on a second. Next Tuesday? That's exactly if, right. If time is of the end, <laughs> you cut on to that. Why are they meeting seven days from now? Well, the fact is that the House is on recess right now, and Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, is abroad. So the soonest that they're going to be able to get together and have this conversation is next Tuesday. And that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of lawmakers, including Mitt Romney today, argued Why are we waiting so long? This is an emergency. We know Congress takes time to figure these things out. We need to be on this sooner. Hadn't President Biden said he wasn't going to meet? I don't know if he ever stated that, but the feeling was he wasn't going to meet with McCarthy because I guess he didn't think that the Republicans were, what, negotiating in good in good faith? Or what was the what had been the holdup until now? Well, one of the arguments that the White House had made is they were not going to negotiate on the debt ceiling. The other argument they had made was House Republicans needed to show their plan. That is exactly what they did last week. They passed their own plan that would increase the debt ceiling as well as hold spending and return it to fiscal year 2022 levels, which means for everyone at home, that they are cutting spending. And that is something that McCarthy was able to unite his conference around. That was a huge leap of faith. It was a huge gamble for McCarthy and his leadership to display to everyone, we're going to say that we're going to vote on this, and then we're going to actually get the votes. Remember, McCarthy has such a narrow margin, he could only afford to lose four Republicans. He was able to do that last week. And I think that is why you're seeing 
the White House willing to have a conversation, not just with McCarthy, but other congressional leaders as well, to try to figure this out. I'm always fascinated by, like, as someone who's not covering politics every day, Kevin McCarthy, Joe Biden, I, I don't get the impression that they're calling each other every night to tuck each other in at night and ask, <laughs> you know, how your day went. And so trying to balance clearly the, the personal divide or personal relationship between the two with the governing responsibility that we are all watching. Why are you taking a week? This is an emergency. What are you doing? And I'm just fascinated when it comes to that meeting, what the dynamics of that meeting is going to be. Is it going to be country or is it going to be politics? Well, I do think that the relationship between Biden and McCarthy is relatively untested, right? I mean, McCarthy is a new speaker. He is generationally in a different place than the president. The relationship that is a lot more established is the one between Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. That relationship spans more than three decades. They have been through multiple times where they've had to figure out fiscal cliffs, where they've had to figure out past debt ceiling negotiations. So they have a little bit more of a runway when it comes to these discussions. But McConnell's sort of taken a back seat. He wants McCarthy to lead these negotiations, in part because McCarthy's the one who has to decide what goes on the House floor and what is going to be something his members, especially the conservative wing of his party, can vote for. So I think it's a kind of an untested relationship. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask a question? You know, uh, I've covered McCarthy for a little while. I covered him actually from Bakersfield of the local side to now this, you know, yeah. large stage. What is he coming in with a position of strength? I know you said that obviously the vote last week was you know a big accomplishment, but it right. was still narrow. Yeah. There's so little room, you would think, on his end to negotiate, especially if the risk is maybe him losing that speakership. Right? Yeah, well, and I'm so glad you brought that up because Ralph Norman, who is a conservative, somebody who has railed against spending in the past. He told me last week, and I made him repeat this over and over again, <laughs> that Kevin McCarthy's argument to conservatives in a private conference meeting was that this bill is not going to be significantly watered down. That was the argument he was making to them to get a vote oh, on boy. it. And I said, are you sure that's what McCarthy was promising you? Did you hear that correctly? And I think a lot of conservatives, that is at least what they are hoping for. They don't want this bill watered down. And remember, there are four Republicans who voted against it, and they are still trying to win back those votes. So what is McCarthy going to bring back to them? I think it's a huge question. And there is a potential that if Kevin McCarthy brings something back to them that is unsatisfactory, he could be in a position where, remember, when he won the speaker's race, any one Republican can absolutely bring a vote to remove him from the speakership. That means that he has to retain enough support from his conference and not lose more members in a way that he can maintain the gavel. And so this is a huge tightrope for him because on the one hand, he has to make sure the country doesn't evolve. On the other hand, he wants oh. to keep his job. I, I just wonder if he can walk this tightrope, right? I mean, he's really between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, Joe Biden's not going to just go and say, well, Kevin, you passed that vote. I'm going to give you everything you want, right? <laughs> no. That's not the way it works. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, if you look at the chance of the default and the people who are actually putting money on this and insuring the U.S. bonds, the chance of a default has been rising rather rapidly in these markets. Now, it's still low, right? But the closer we get, and especially with the comments today from Janet Yellen, I have to ask whether, I, you know, is this a realistic scenario? I, I, it could definitely seem like a realistic scenario that we could end up defaulting, given the current uh, lines going through Congress and the president, right? Well, I think that's certainly a potential. And I think that the White House is certainly 
guessing that if the market starts to drop in a dramatic way, that changes the calculus for Republicans. Maybe they're more willing to come to the table. Maybe they are more willing to move to the side of Democrats. If all of a sudden they start hearing from Wall Street, this is a major problem. And not just hearing from them in private meetings, but seeing it unfold on Wall Street. And I think that is the impetus that the White House is counting on when it comes to moving this negotiation forward and partially why they have waited 90 days since their last meeting. With See, them. I just feel like we have covered this so many times. Yeah. There's been so many iterations of the debt ceiling. You, know, you don't even have to be a political reporter to have <laughs> covered this for years. And what ha- always happens is... The sky is falling, the sky is falling, and then at the 11th hour, they come up with some magical solution, and it's a compromise, and they, lo and behold, we don't default on our debt. So I have always felt like, okay, they're not going to trick me again. However, is this year different than all of the past years when we've covered this? I think you always have to be careful by using the past as prologue for these kinds of scenarios, because every political situation is different. And I think McCarthy's position, like we said— job or default is extremely precarious when it comes to his role in this. I think he's just really untested as a leader, right? And so we we haven't seen him have to negotiate this with the White House at this point when everyone's watching. I, I think that this is a totally different scenario than we've seen in the past. I'll, I'll note, I think I did the math a, a few months ago when the debt ceilings talks first started that there have been more talks about the debt ceiling and perhaps defaulting over the last decade or so than there have been summer Olympics. So, yeah, it does seem to me (laughs) like we have had this discussions a lot. But I think, you know, the politics of it now and given the small majority that the Republicans have in the House may make this perhaps a little bit different. Hopefully not. Hopefully they reach a solution, but we'll see. Did they talk about this, Lauren? I mean, do we have anything that, that they said? Are you reading the tea leaves from what they said today? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you're hearing from lawmakers on Capitol Hill is they are still really divided on what the path forward is. And I thought it was interesting because lawmakers come into town at about 5.30. The Senate is in session. The House is out of session. But our colleagues on the Hill were running around talking to all these members. And one thing that you heard over and over again was the talking points that Republicans and Democrats have had. And this came after Janet Yellen's letter where she said, basically, we didn't get as much money from taxes as we thought we were going to get. Therefore, we could reach this deadline by June 1st. Oh, boy. All right. Thank you for explaining. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad. Motivational yeah. talk right now. Yeah. 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 I, I hope all of Congress was just listening. Thank you very much, Lauren. All right. When we come back, the manhunt going on tonight in Texas and beyond. Hundreds of law enforcement officers searching for the suspect accused of that massacre that killed five people, including a nine-year-old boy. Omar is following this story for us next. All right, an urgent manhunt underway for the suspect wanted in the massacre of five people in Cleveland, Texas. 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa is accused of shooting and killing five of his neighbors, including a nine-year-old child, after they asked him to stop firing his rifle so close to their home so their baby could sleep. Omar Jimenez is on this story for us. Omar, he was here, this suspect was here in the U.S. um, illegally. He had been deported several times. Uh, The manhunter, are they looking in Mexico, where he's from? Well, that's certainly part of, I'm sure, their search. He was a Mexican national. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, an immigration source had told CNN that he had been deported four times, uh, came to the U.S. initially back in 2009. But what's interesting about that is 
that does not necessarily inform what may have led to this shooting because this shooting it happened in a way that you could almost see in any neighborhood where it's a guy who, who's firing his weapon, family comes over and says, hey, look, I know you're firing your weapon, but we got a baby sleeping. Could you just do it on the other side of your house? Which seems to most people like a reasonable request. Yet less than a half hour later, he comes barging into the home shooting and killing uh, God, godparents of this man, uh, children, killed his nine-year-old son, killed the mother of the son. And he even said, the father, Wilson Garcia, said that once the mother went down, when she first got shot, another person in the house told him to jump out the back window because here was a son or ch- children who had now lost the mother and they didn't want him to be lost to and these children not to grow up grow up without a father. This is all happening in the moment as someone is now barging in to to, to kill them. It's so shocking. It's just so awful. Also, I had read, Omar, and I don't know if you've reported on this, these families hadn't had issues with each other before. In fact, the wife of the shooter and the wife who was killed, the mother of the nine-year-old, had been friendly yeah. And I believe that the shooter had at one time helped them with either their car was broken down or something in their yard needed. So does anybody know why, what set him off, why he went into a homicidal rage? Well, that's a big question. I mean, they, they seem to have a normal relationship that you would have with, with any neighbors that, yes, they talked all the time. Uh, he even helped the suspect, had helped at one point cut down a tree in the neighbor's yard. You know, and clearly they're having contact even when this man's shooting his gun. They feel comfortable enough to walk up to someone who is firing a weapon and say, hey, totally cool if you want to do this. Just do this over there, and we're going to go back over here. So clearly there was a relationship. But yeah, what authorities are trying to figure out is what set him off, because clearly there was something. This snap happened, again, within a matter of less than half an hour. And it wasn't just a snap of yelling in someone's face. It was shooting to the point of indiscriminately killing children, of targeting those. There were even younger children who survived this ordeal. but Because they hid one of them. Because they hid. They hid under clothes. That, that, that is the reality of, of growing up in many parts of America, is that you could find yourself in a position where you're in a neighborhood home trying to enjoy a Friday night, and just by lightly confronting someone to say, hey, can you consider our, our child, you could end up in a situation like this. So it's scary for, for a lot of people looking in on this. I don't know if you guys saw the interview today with the father. Yeah. It yeah. is so heartbreaking because he lost his nine-year-old. He lost his wife. He still has a one-year-old, the baby who was sleeping, and the four-year-old who they hid under clothing. I mean, his life is, I mean, he, he just can't believe it's one of these situations where in the, the flash of a moment, you make a decision and then your entire life changes. Yeah. And, you know, the, the wildest thing now is, all right, all this happens. Authorities have no idea where he is. As of this point, police have had no leads, at least that they're, that, at least that they're saying publicly. I should, I should mention that. The FBI considers him armed and dangerous. They put out an $80,000 reward just, you know, to try and spur people to come forward. But again, him being a Mexican national, I'm sure that's informing where they're potentially looking. But also the the victims killed here, they were uh, from Honduras. And so the Honduran government is, of course, trying to not only send support to these families that were lost, but also try to make sure family back home in, in Honduras is, is taken care of as well. And so th- this 
One thing actually I should mention too is the local sheriff, because uh, you brought up that, that he had been deported many times before, he was, he was asked about that. You know, why, why is this man here, someone who's been deported? And his answer was, at this point, it doesn't matter whether he was here legally or not, especially for the family, because what we're dealing with here is someone who committed violence against these people, and these people live in an area that I have jurisdiction over. And I need to take care of that. Omar, can I ask you, and and, uh, again, I don't know if you specifically touched on this uh, in the course of reporting on this, but one of the things that came up in this conversation was Governor Greg Abbott, when he put out that release, uh, not just describing the shooter, but he also described the victims, in his words, he said, as (coughs) illegal immigrants, as as folks who are undocumented here in this country. Do you get any sense as to why the governor decided to label the victims in this particular way using that language? Well, Look, if you've been paying attention to Governor Greg Abbott in in Texas over the past year and a half beyond, he has been very critical of the Biden administration when it comes to how he interprets their handling of what's happening down at the border. To the point where he's been sending uh, people apprehended at the border to other major cities in Chicago and New York, other Washington, D.C. as well. And so when he put out that initial statement, it was kind of in theme, for better or for worse, of what his messaging has been when it comes to anybody, any story he has seen involving any form of deportation, any form of potentially being in this country under questionable circumstances. You notice that once he learned at least one of them was not, he, he walked it back yeah. a little. <clears throat> yeah. But it's still the, the sentiment, sentiment of it remained that he wanted people to know that as part of this, there was an issue of of illegality in regards to uh, immigration status, whether that had any motivation in the actual shooting itself or not. It's been several days since this took place. Can you describe, like, what does a manhunt look like when you are dealing with a suspect who is on the loose and you may not be able to find them? Well, it's one, a coordination of a lot of jurisdictions. Texas is a big place with a lot of place, a lot of space to drive. And, you know, uh, across multiple jurisdictions, you're going to start at the state level. You're going to also, the local sheriffs here, as even said, they're really understaffed. And so they're likely relying on other help as well. You likely have Customs and Border Protection involved because you're trying to make sure that potentially this Mexican national doesn't try and go back to Mexico. And if he does, you can potentially catch him at the border there. The FBI also involved in case he's going from state to state, trying to coordinate and lock down and use as many of their resources to get at least a sighting of him. Because, again, as we've mentioned at this point, there's no leads. And, you know, you put the face out there to try and spur people to say, you know, what? actually, I, I think I saw someone who may look like. And he that. also has distinctive tattoos that I want yeah. to call everybody's uh, attention to, because um, the authorities are obviously going to rely on the public's help. For this, yeah. And they do have a lot of photos of him. So take a good look. You just can call 1-800-CALL-FBI if you see anybody like this. Because he's going to be, you know, he's on the run. He's obviously going to need money. People are going to see him, actually. Harry, you had a question? Yeah, no, I, I, it just seems to me that there are a lot of political fault lines sort of driving through this case, right? We have guns on the one hand. Yeah. We have illegal immigration on the other hand. And I'm just wondering how this all kind of, you know, plays out. Because it feels like everybody, you know, Besides the obviously human interest point of this and, you know, so many people needlessly murdered, uh, you know, people are going to probably play politics with this and just how it's sort of playing out, because it seems like each side sort of has a way they could they could do it. Yeah, people 
We'll find a way to play politics with anything. I mean, we've got some D.C. reporters around. You, you know that. But in this particular case, yeah, I mean, when you look at gun violence alone, if you just want to stick with that, we've already had almost 200 mass shootings four months into the air across this country. I was just covering Louisville two weeks ago. Since then, we have had mass shootings in cities across this country, not just in ones that get huge coverage, but nearly every night or every week shoot shootings in some of these cities. So you've got that. Now, Guns in Texas is a little bit less of a political issue than it would be guns in Seattle, for example. Mm -hmm. But people looking at that from the outside in would say, look, all right, here's someone who clearly or had something that made him snap or go, I now want to kill these people. And gun advocates would look at that and say, well, if he didn't have a gun, this interaction might be hand-to-hand combat. It might be, we might be talking about a stabbing as opposed to an entire family decimated. Yet, on the other side of things, someone might say, well, if this family had had a gun and maybe they could shoot back, you know, that's that's where the politics start coming into play. When, if you looked at the father, Wilson Garcia, as he spoke today, he was far away from politics. He yeah. was trying to figure out how he is going to move forward, how he's going to raise these other kids who have lost a, a good portion of their family in the blink of an eye. Um, and it's it's a place, sadly, that so many families across this country have found themselves in. There is a GoFundMe page set up to try to help that family. And again, call uh, 1-800-CALL-FBI if you know anything. All right. Meanwhile, the governor of Pennsylvania taking a major step to stop the spread of the drug known as Trank. So Danny's been following this developing story for us and is going to tell us all about it next. We'll see it in the yeah. All right, Pennsylvania taking steps to tackle the spread of a powerful sedative known as Trank. Its real name is Xylazine. Xylazine? And uh, Governor Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania is classifying it as a Schedule Three drug. Xylazine is a non-opioid veterinary tranquilizer, not approved for human use. Pennsylvania joins three other states, Ohio, Florida, and West Virginia, in classifying this sedative as a controlled substance. And Danny Freeman is following this story for us. So, Danny, just explain how bad is this in Pennsylvania? I mean, as you heard me stumbling through that, most of us ha- don't even know about this drug yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess just to set the stage, as you said, it's it's a drug that's mostly used as a sedative or a muscle relaxer, but for cows and horses. Like, that's how strong and powerful we're talking about. And it has found its way into a lot of uh, other illicit drugs, such as fentanyl, heroin, and, you know, we'll get into it in a minute, but people are taking drugs or expecting drugs to be fentanyl, to be heroin, and then this is laced in there, and it gets very complicated. But you asked the question, uh, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, uh, why now? And this problem with xylosine, with Trank, has been kind of snowballing for a couple of years now. Folks have been detecting it here and there. Uh, I would say over the past six months, it's really come to a head. Uh, DEA saying that this is something that they issued a public alert, saying this is something we need to pay attention to. Uh, The White House just last month saying that this is an emerging threat that we need to pay attention to. And now Pennsylvania, Governor Josh Shapiro, in the past week and a half, he said this is something that we're going to put on the controlled substance list. It's going to be a Schedule Three drug. And it's because I just want to show you some numbers that, you know, you, you mentioned. Uh, in 2021, 34% of all Philadelphia overdose deaths, xylosine was mm. detected. So 
you know, you can just start to appreciate the scale of the problem that's actually happening, not just in the city, which Shapiro called the epicenter of this problem, but it's spreading throughout the state and throughout the country. So as you were saying, these are people who don't even necessarily know that they are not looking for, they're not looking for xylosine, they don't want it, but they're getting it. What does it do to the body? What do people look like when they're on it? Yeah, it's, it's uh, awful. It's really, really terrible. It's painful. But uh, frankly, I probably could not do it justice describing it to you. But uh, one of our reporters, our correspondents, Ellie Reeves, she actually went to Kensington, one of the you know, ground zero spots in Philadelphia for drug use often. And she spoke with people who are on this drug and who have been suffering because of it. Uh, take a listen. It's been open for 21 months. That's how hard it was. Trying to us. Doesn't let your body heal. It's killing us. Slow but sure it's killing us. Some of us earlier than others, but it's eventually going to kill you if you keep going. And I see it every day. Death. Every day. Right next to you. Oh, my God, that's awful. I mean, that is zombie stuff, like an open wound, as he was saying, for 21 months. Yeah, and, and there have been cases where it gets so bad, these these ulcers that get on your skin, that people have lost limbs because of that. And, and you know, not it hasn't been studied a tremendous amount in humans, again, because it hasn't been a controlled substance. It has It's not designed for this. So there's still research being done as to why this is happening to people's skin, but it happens, and it, it, it's... It's sad and it's hurting a lot of people, again, in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania and the country. I always I always think about like how how do you begin to tackle this? Because, you know, when you talk about the drugs itself, it always seems like someone's looking for something stronger. It's not just heroin. It's heroin with fentanyl. It's not just fentanyl. It's 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 trank as well. And, you know, on one hand, it's okay. maybe we can try to eliminate the supply of this. But. In some ways, if you eliminate the supply, wouldn't they just go and try and find something stronger? So how, how do you begin to, to tackle this? Well, it, it's interesting, you know, and, and again, like I said, this is one of the newer phenomenons that yeah. folks who are dealing in this space are trying to address. So uh, people are still figuring that out. But what I would say is that I mentioned before, it's a horse tranquilizer, right? A horse sedative, right? So it is used by farmers and other folks who, you know, deal with veterinary practices, you know, and, and need to sedate a cow for some reason. The government, the DEA says, that's not where this is coming from. Mm. The DEA said in a report from last year, people can go online, they can buy it from Chinese suppliers, and it comes in, and what it does is, is it elongates the high of mm. something like fentanyl or something like heroin, and that's why you know people or bad actors are putting it into these drugs and, and selling it on the street. So it is a hard question as to how to then address that. But that's kind of how the larger ecosystem is working right now. Um, but yeah, it's a challenge. And in Pennsylvania and these other states as well who have now you know, designated this as a controlled substance, the goal is to get more resources to fight back. So just so I, I'm clear, are people, yeah. are people who are using these drugs, are they seeking out this additional thing or are people putting it in and they don't know they're getting it, or is it a little of A and a little of B? What's exactly shaking? No, really, as far as the studies go so far and the people who are on the ground, people don't look out for this drug. People don't say, I want Trank on the whole, right? And it was interesting. There was actually a study done by the uh, CDC recently at the end of last year, or excuse me, that was just released uh, in the past week that was about the uh, a portion of time in 2022. And it said that uh, they surveyed 200 users or 200 plus users of uh, drugs that had Trank in it, only 6% of those people, uh, when they were looking for heroin or fentanyl, actually got heroin and fentanyl. In 81% of the time, Trank 
or xylosine was actually in the drug that they had or some other thing. So, no, they're not folks are not seeking this out. It's in there, though, and it's causing a lot of pain. Absolutely. It's awful. I mean, and we've all seen the stories of, you know, teenagers who think they're getting Adderall or who think that they're getting a Percocet and then end up getting fentanyl or something like this. And it's just awful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, so that's what it's hard when the drug in question is not a controlled substance. There are not a lot of levers that governments can do to uh, address this, really. So in Pennsylvania and these other states as well, by making it a Schedule Three drug, now the government can control shipping, control delivery, can actually uh, mandate that it's stored in a locked place when you have this drug. You know, it's those little things uh, that hopefully will lead to better enforcement. And that's the other thing. Law enforcement officers, if they so choose, can now regulate it themselves and decide if they want to charge if people are selling or distributing. That sounds like progress. Go ahead. What do you make of the fact that Josh Shapiro, a Democrat who a lot of people look to as a potential presidential contender down the line, is taking this action? Is this sort of like Democrats turning the tide on being tough on crime in a way that maybe they learned a lesson from the last election? You know, I think I think Governor Shapiro is an interesting figure in this particular moment because you know he came into office uh, certainly running against a more extreme Republican candidate, uh, Senator Doug Mastriano, State Senator Doug Mastriano. But I think that what he has tried to do, at least in his first now 100 plus days of being in office, is be more bipartisan than perhaps other uh, Pennsylvania Democratic governors have been in the past. So I don't think that he would necessarily say, you know, he had a press conference in Philadelphia that this is you know, our office being hard on crime or tough on crime. Mm -hmm. I think they're saying, uh, his administration and other people who are working in this space, listen, addiction to this or any other types of drugs in these, you know, opiates, right, in this case, uh, is a disease. That's not a crime. We're looking first to attack the disease. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here in Pennsylvania. Danny, thank you very much for educating us to all this. It is horrible, as you say. All right. On a much lighter note, we are about to show you Harry's star turn on the red carpet at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We'll show you which celebrities he was pestering. Can you believe they allowed me to do this? The Writers Guild of America reportedly walking away from the negotiation table without a deal tonight. Their contract expires at midnight Pacific time. And at this moment, Hollywood is bracing for a strike. If it happens, who will entertain us? Will it be AI or will we have to rely on Harry Enten? Hmm, Here it is. Here's what that would look like. I just have one question for you. Obviously, you're the comedian of the evening. But if you were not, in fact, the comedian of the evening, would you actually be watching this event? You're the, you're the data guy. I am guy. the data guy. You know who yeah, I am. Yeah, I know exactly who and you are. And I know are. who you are. If this was going up against Monday Night Football, <laughs> all right, I'll DVR and check back on it later. That's a great question. I have no idea what I'm doing here. But oh, you know, they call this the nerd prom. I have to ask, how does this compare to your actual prom back in the day? Well, actually, there is no difference between this prom, my actual prom. I don't have a date to either one. <laughs> well, I was a nerd, so this feels right to me. Your accent makes my accent look so crummy by comparison, and people always say I have this thick New York accent, but nothing compared to your accent. Wow, well, who could make this up? Who could? I, I, I don't think anyone could make it up. <laughs> Harry, that is awesome. How much fun did you have? I, I have to be honest. I, I was 
nervous going into it. And the reason. So you'd never, you'd never, had you gone to the White House Correspondents Center? I had once attended. I had worked on, you know, coverage, but back from the studio, right? Not on the red carpet. Not on the red carpet. And I think, you know, one of the things that people take for granted, perhaps when watching television, is they don't realize there are certain people who have some skills and other people who have other skills. (laughs) And so the idea that I would hold a microphone up to somebody and ask them questions is not something I've really ever done before, right? I'm not a field reporter. I'm usually in the safe confines of the studio (laughs) where someone like you is asking me questions and I'm giving the response instead of the other way around. And it's like, oh my God, am I going to do something wrong? And so perhaps there was some nervous energy that was coming out during that clip, but it seemed it seemed to work. I feel like I you asked it. a perfect question yeah. to Roy Wood Jr. right off the front, right off the bat. He hesitated years ago. How should I answer <laughs> I know, this right that now? Was great. I am hosting, but also I probably wouldn't be watching this. I'd be watching football. You know? So I feel like I feel like you nailed it, man. Well, thank you. That's very. very I, will, I will endorse you to go out and do it again next year if you so choose. Well, if that means anything to anyone, I, I, let's get him back out there. I'm hoping. <laughs> you know, know. <laughs> if we have Oscar coverage, I'm hoping that maybe there I can. There we go. Here we go. Translate. What else do you want to do? Translate. Like, let's just, you know, maybe a, a red carpet. Met going on. Met Gala. Met Gala. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah you you got to run out. That is got to get there. I, I just like also that, you know, most, you know, television journalists go up and they interview people in the field, you know, yeah. MOS about different things, the gas prices, the milk prices, and you start at the White House Correspondents' Dinner red carpet. That's like the, that's the starting point for interviewing people. No yeah, pressure. That, yeah, no, no pressure. <laughs> I sort of leaped ahead. But, what, you know, what was interesting to me also was the types of celebrities that were yeah. there, right? So, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who uh, were well-known in the 1990s or the early 2000s, and that actually played very well for me because <laughs> that's all of my pop culture references. Perfect. So should we see a little bit more of you? Yeah, let's, let's, talk, yes, let's talk. Please, more please. <laughs> oh, look, there's Joe Mattingly. I wonder if he'll tell us tales from his baseball days. You know what I would love to see do this event? Chris Rock. Oh. That would Will be... Smith wasn't here, it'd be okay. You said it, not me. <laughs> I'm very hard of myself. Do you suggest that he gets for dinner if he's looking for something interesting to eat in Benneville, Arkansas? Well, of course, uh, you know, the barbecue can't be beat there. You stand then. You stand now. When the heck do you ever sit down? I'll start on this end. It's sort of a foodie paradise there, so you'll find a lot of different options and some incredible uh, tacos, Mexican food. How long did that conversation with Asa Hutchison go on? I, you know, I got to say the former governor was very kind. And it, what, what it was is my uh, friend, uh, Neil Payne, moved to Bentonville, Arkansas. So he's actually neighbors with Asa Hutchinson. So I was legitimately asking him a question. I was looking out for my buddy, Neil. I was like, <laughs> where can Neil get a good bite to eat in Bentonville, Arkansas? So, you know, it wasn't just about me. It was also about my friends. I want to sure. talk about um, Lauren, course. in terms of tomorrow's news, how many relationships will you have to repair now that Harry has done this to various, you know, <laughs> right, like peppered people yeah. on. I mean, it's actually a good training and a good reminder for me on Capitol Hill, like how I can get some attention from senators. Right. Like I can use your strategy, like the red carpet strategy in the yeah. halls of the Dirksen office building. <laughs> but that was just waving and jumping that Harry was. Doing. Well, I mean, we'll try it. We'll see if it works. You I know, mean, everyone has their own strategy. Much more echoey in that building yeah, than on that carpet. I think Senator Bernie Sanders would love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he would love that. I think he would respond well. <laughs> I, I, I think the question would be who has the best accent, me, Fran Drescher. 
or Bernie Sanders. That is true. Oh, right. Ooh. You're right. Wow. That's, That's a hard contest. We won't answer that because then I would have to repair that relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right. Um, so what was your favorite moment? Uh, I think if we have uh, some sound of it, uh, I, we, there was a moment with someone from the uh, 1990s show, uh, Wings, uh, which was very big for me. I don't know if we have the sound. Do we have that sound? If we, we do. Let's listen to it. <laughs> Harry. Harry, I'm Tim. Yeah, I know you because I, I watched the show Wings. Wings was one of my favorite shows of all time. You must have been four years old, but great. I'm glad you watched it. I was on an episode of Wings. Were you really? Yeah, I played this tall girl at a uh, singles dance, and I started crying because I'm too tall and no one wants to dance with me. Well, you're not too tall for me. Oh, never. I'd say all three of us wear heels, actually. Yeah. That's, the, that's a little-known secret of this team. Whatever you want to wear is all right by me. Can you believe they allowed me to do this? <laughs> no, we can't, actually. All right, that was great. That was really fun. Well, it was a pleasure being there. And although I was nervous to start out with, it's uh, great to expand my wings and prove that I can be someplace besides the studio. Yeah, you spread your sure. wings and you um, obviously hooked up with your old-time wings That's fangirling. Right. I-, I love the show Wings. The theme song's fantastic. And I've even flown in the plane that is featured in the opening credit of Wings. That's beautiful. So it all fun came fact. together. Fun fact. That's fun. <laughs> All right, Harry, thank you very much for that. Okay, at another gala, a baby announcement for tennis superstar Serena Williams at the annual Met Gala tonight here in New York City, Williams announced that she and her husband are expecting their second child. She looks stunning in her black dress and pearls. The couple already has a five-year-old daughter, Olympia. Last year, Williams said in an essay in Vogue that she planned to grow her family as she evolved away from tennis. And she's doing just that. Okay, up next, On the Lookout, our reporters are going to tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. Can't wait to hear it. We'll be right back. And we are back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Lauren, what do you got? Well, tomorrow is a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the ethics of the Supreme Court. They wanted John Roberts to testify. Instead, they're going to have a series of experts on the Supreme Court to testify. But the reason it matters and the reason I'm so interested in it is because there's obviously a lot of questions about whether or not the Supreme Court needs to tighten its ethics rules, whether or not they need to come up with some protections to make sure that the American public has belief and trust in the Supreme Court after what we've seen over the last several weeks and all of this reporting that's come out on Clarence Thomas's lavish travels. I think that that is going to be something to watch tomorrow. Okay. Thank you for that. Danny. Uh, I have a similarly very, very serious thing that I'm looking forward to. Uh, Sixers won tonight. (laughs) (laughs) The Celtics, no one thought that was going to happen. It was fantastic. Without Embiid, I'm looking forward to game two. And, you know, of course, everyone in Philadelphia, they're hoping. I mean, look at this. I mean, Harden was unbelievable. (laughs) 40-plus points. I mean, just, it was nuts tonight. I am glad that the game ended so I could come here, but I was glued to the screen this entire time. And, again, I'm looking to see if Embiid comes back. You know, he's been having this injury since, you know, uh, wiping the floor with the Nets. And, uh, I know, we hope he comes back. I'm so glad you're able to multitask tonight. Thank you for that. All right, Omar. Well, aside from keeping an eye on Lakers Warriors, because that's another good series I'm going to keep an eye on. Of course. But this week uh, is World Press Freedom Day on Wednesday. And so tomorrow uh, I'm actually moderating a panel at the United Nations. We're bringing together the heads of uh, various 
media rights groups from around the world to to talk not just about what countries can do across the world, but also to bring awareness to some very high profile imprisoned journalists like Evan Gershkovich right now in, in Russia, Austin Tice in Syria, but also to bring light to some other stories as well. And obviously we're coming off the fun of the White House Correspondence Center, but obviously at the, at the center of it all is the ability to do journalism. And we're going to take some of those conversations to to a global level this week. And I hope to be able to share some of those conversations. I'm so glad you're doing that because it is getting more dangerous to be a journalist around the world. Omar, thank you very much. Okay, Harry, what are you keeping an eye on? Uh, It is snowing currently in northern Michigan. uh, And it snowed in Green Bay uh, yesterday or still today, earlier today. And, you know, it's not unusual that it snows in northern Michigan this time of year, but it's the amounts that are so unusual. We're talking double digits. We could be looking upwards of two feet when it's all said and done in some locations. And I can only say I'm extremely jealous. Uh, I went to college, the specific college I went to in part because I wanted snow. And this year was a record low snow total in New York City. (laughs) Apparently it's all going to northern Michigan and to Minneapolis, which I think had like the third highest snowfall total ever for them in a season. So God bless them. Hopefully, if they need me to come shovel them out, I'd be more than willing. All right. I feel like you both have revealed that you're a closet meteorologist and you're a closet sportscaster. So that is fantastic. Thank you all. Great to have you with me tonight. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, what does the man who pioneered the personal computer think about artificial intelligence? You're going to find out when Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak joins the show live. That starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.